Good afternoon, everyone. This is Libby Halevi, and what you're listening to is a podcast that I do called Nuclear Hot Seat. And what this is is a single citizen's perspective, an activist perspective, on what's going on in the nuclear world, meaning with Fukushima and the problems that are coming up in Nebraska and in other places, and an in-gathering of information that is out there on the web for you to check. The goal is to help you be up to date and understand exactly what we're facing in terms of the nuclear challenge. I have this perspective in my life because many years ago, 32 years ago to be exact, I was one mile away from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania when it malfunctioned. At that time, there was no clear information. We certainly didn't have the Internet to go checking our information. And there were many problems that I experienced physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually in the wake of that that have only abated uh, through the years, through a lot of work, through a lot of investigation on my own. And actually, some of the pieces have only cleared up since Fukushima, and I've gotten very involved in research around the issues. My goal in doing all of this is to help you understand what's out there so that you can make conscious choices about your political stance, about your personal health. Holistic healing is going to be mentioned in every one of these uh, casts that I do, these podcasts, and to help you become aware of how much information is not being shared out there in the world and give you access and leads to the places that do. So the first thing to cover in the news today is, of course, the situation that is going on in Nebraska right now. You may not have caught it on the news because it's uh, strangely, if not officially blacked out, there's a huge aversion in American media to covering the danger that currently two nuclear reactors are in because of the flooding on the Missouri River. One of these is at the Fort Calhoun nuclear reactor, which is 20 miles north of Omaha, and the other one is the Cooper nuclear reactor, which is 75 miles south of Omaha, also on the banks of the Missouri River. There's been horrific flooding, which of course is a terrible problem that is being faced by the people in that area. And uh, upstream of Fort Calhoun, there are only a series of earthen or clay-based berms and levees that are holding back the water. Because of record rainfall, uh, the rate of snowmelt from the Rockies, and also Army Corps of Engineers not completely thought out releases of water, the water has so flooded in the river that it has come up as of four days ago. And this program is being done on Tuesday, the 21st of June, 2011. Four days ago, on the 17th, it was reported that the water level in the river was up to 1,004 feet above sea level. The nuclear reactor at Fort Calhoun is situated 1,004 feet above sea level, meaning there are pictures that exist. Uh, a local reporter went by on a, on a motorboat because it's a no-fly zone. They say they don't want helicopters overhead, um, but there are no current pictures of what it looks like overhead. But four days ago, uh, this guy went by in a motorboat, even though the Nuclear Regulatory Commission didn't want him to, and took footage, and the water at that point was lapping up to the bottom of the reactor. 
Now, there's a previous event that took place on June 7th at the reactor where there was a fire. It was a level one alert, and uh, it was a notification of an unusual event. This is a literal phrase that is used by the NRC to identify what problems exist at reactors. So under this category, and I'm quoting here from their materials, under this category, events are in process or have occurred which indicate potential degradation in the level of safety of the plant. No release of radioactive material requiring off-site response or monitoring is expected unless further degradation occurs. That was on the 7th of June. There was also a fire that happened at that time, and the problem with the fire was that it took out the electrical systems, and the electrical systems are what run the cooling system, so the core started heating up. The backup systems did kick in after, I believe it was 90 minutes, so that bullet was dodged. However, as the water keeps rising, and yes, they have various devices, they have sandbags, believe it or not, even though the groundwater is, uh, the ground is completely saturated. And, uh, what that means is that sandbags really aren't fully effective, but they have a, an eight foot tube that has been inflated that is part of, uh, what is currently holding back the water. But the water keeps rising. It rose two feet in the last 48 hours alone. And there is still more rain, there is still more snowmelt, and it's estimated that the water can go up for many more feet and is not expected to go down for possibly two to three months. So we're looking at a flood zone and a nuclear reactor that is now, if we can believe the photo from four days ago, and it's gotten worse since then, is completely an island. It is completely surrounded by water. Here's the, and they say that this is okay. That, uh, four days ago, they said it would be okay for the water to go up another three and a half feet because it was safe and it would never get that high. Well, it's gone up two feet already, as I've said. And the problem there is that if the water gets in and shorts out the electrical system, it will lose the power necessary to circulate the water to keep the core cool. Now, this is a plant that was taken offline in April for repairs. So fortunately, it wasn't actively cranking. However, nuclear fuel rods are not like your light switch. It's not a matter of it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. What happens is that they can turn it off, but there is residual heat that takes weeks, if not months, to go down completely. So that fuel is still hot. Uh, that's part of what the problem is at Fukushima. That plant, of course, has been offline for, for ever since the uh, event happened on March 11th. But the radiation is still pouring out because it's still hot. No matter how much water they're pouring on it, it's still hot and, and radiating out. So that's the potential that we face at Fort Calhoun. Down at Cooper, they have also listed themselves as notification of an unusual event. It is still operational. They are still cranking out electricity at that plant. But again, the same problem is being faced, that with the water rising, it can take out the electrical system, and if it takes out the electrical system, it will take out the cooling system, and then we've got a Fukushima-level problem right there in the heartland of America on a river that goes by Kansas City, Omaha, uh, St. Louis, and then pours into the Mississippi. Now, there's a story 
around this that I find extremely curious. I'm trying not to be alarmist. I'm trying not to be a fear mongerer. Uh, those are two phrases that are being thrown around at anybody who's talking about this as being maybe a little bit more dangerous than mainstream media is letting on. But that's the problem. The mainstream media isn't talking about this. Most people are unaware that there's even the possibility of a problem. And without information, they can't make decisions. And everybody's going around like, well, the flooding's really bad, and let's take care of the flooding. And this is not to understate the difficulties and the problems and the devastation that's being created by the water in and of itself. But the potential is there for it to become much worse, and it's not being covered by mainstream media. Beyond that, going online and researching there are articles that have appeared in mainstream media that suddenly are disappearing online. Um, there, is, uh, there have been reports, and again, this is anecdotal information. Okay, What that means is it hasn't been linked conclusively, but it sure is a curious piece of information. So anecdotally, Fox News in two different cities, two different areas of the countries, did report on infant mortality in the wake of Fukushima, infant mortality here in the United States. What they found was that in the northwest part of the country, meaning Seattle and the environs around there, that after Fukushima, in the month after Fukushima happened, the infant mortality rate, let me make certain I get this right. Uh, I have so much information here. The infant mortality rate in the northwest spiked 35% in the wake of the meltdown. Now, this was based on data from the Center for Disease Control's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report on Infant Mortality Rates in eight northwest cities, including Seattle, in the 10 weeks after Fukushima's nuclear meltdown, 35%. Here's the other piece that came up. In Philadelphia, of all places, there was a 48% spike in infant mortality following Fukushima. Excuse me, following Fukushima. The reason in Philadelphia is supposed on the fact that they had a tremendous amount of rain during the time that the radiational plume was going over the United States the first time, that first really heavy blast after nuclear reactor 3 had the explosion and the debris went up into the upper atmosphere. When it went up into the upper atmosphere, it was nanoized as dust and then blew in the upper atmosphere in those winds there. You know how on weather reports you see the Doppler radar that shows how the winds are blowing? It's, it went up into that arena and started blowing around like the Doppler would show the winds are going. And in that way, it's not... Um, it's not a linear thing of it goes from where it was in Japan and goes east in a direct line. It follows that circuitous path of the winds. And in that period of time, immediately after Fukushima, when the plume was coming over, there was a lot of rain in Philadelphia. And that is believed to be the reason why this may be happening now. The national infant mortality rate has only gone up 2.3%. Not insignificant, but that's what it has been nationally. But in these two areas where specific reports were done, that's a huge and considered to be a significant spike. 
this came from reports uh, by physician Janet Sherman and an epidemiologist named Joseph Manano. Uh, they published on Monday, and interestingly enough, within 48 hours, the report disappeared from Fox News. Fortunately, it lives on in other iterations on the Internet because once it's on the Internet, it's hard to get rid of it completely. So you can still find it, but they backed away from it. Um, this is becoming a pattern that when some of the more alarming news shows up, not to be alarmist, but there are times when we should be alarmed. Paul Revere was an alarmist, too, and we consider him to be a hero, that there was another report that someone tried to make me aware of earlier today. Apparently, MSN, MSNBC um, had a report something about increased levels of cesium, which is a radioactive isotope that is linked to Japan, showing up in the water. And I forget which city it was, but it was showing up in the water. By the time I went to try and download this, it was taken off. And it's curious that with this big a potential story, and all of our news media, nothing seems to be reported, not on a regular basis. Now, when I was at Three Mile Island, I know that the first two days, the government said, ah, nothing to worry about, it's not a problem. And my assumption was, this is just, you know, media hype, they're blowing it up out of proportion, nothing to be worried about. Then on the third day, the ambulance went down the street with a loudspeaker coming out of it saying, close your doors and windows, stay inside, and don't do anything. You don't go outside unless you absolutely have to. And at that point, they came out more fully about the fact that there was more radiation. It had been released, though we never found out the exact amounts of it. And um, basically, the genie was out of the bottle at that point. So in the Midwest, in the Omaha area, the local publications are all citing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and also the Omaha Power Company. It's OPPC, I think. Um, I would have to check that. Um, but they're all saying, ah, nothing to worry about. It's safe on a, on a scale of 1 to 10. We're at a number 10 as far as our safety is concerned. I don't know about you. Again, I state my bias. I am anti-nuke anti-nuclear reactor, anti-nuclear power, and I do not believe the government because I personally experienced the lies at Three Mile Island. So here's the government saying nothing to worry about when the river is rising. The cooling systems are fueled by electricity, but there's no saying what's going to happen to the electricity if the systems get flooded, and the floodwaters aren't going down anytime soon. So I leave it to you to do the math. I know that I find that alarming. I also find the lack of information in mainstream media and the taking away of what deserves to be out there that people have tried to post as being quite alarming. Um, so I guess that maybe that makes me an alarmist. I don't know. But um, I'm also aware of how language can be used against us to turn us off it's like you put a word or a phrase up against something. I remember back in the 50s, all you had to do was call something communist, and people would freak out and push it away and refuse to pay any attention to it. There are words and terms that we are programmed to automatically discount information if it's labeled in a particular way. Um, I leave it to you to make your own decisions about this. Here's another little piece that I found that was really 
interesting. Up in Canada, and we're talking about Newfoundland, far eastern Newfoundland, a little town called Gander, um, in their June 2nd edition of The Beacon, which is their little local newspaper, it was discussed how the release of radiation from the Fukushima plant in Japan could potentially be poisoning Canadian soil. I mean, if we're getting it in the U.S., they're getting it in, in uh, Canada as well. And this was a concern in central Newfoundland that there was evidence from various radiation monitors and news reports showing that because this has become a worldwide issue and that airspace is shared, it's entirely possible that Canada has been affected as the U.S. has. So even though local farmers have not had their soil and water tested, one local farmer, a woman named Nita Abbott of L.A. Farms, uh, this was near a little town called Gambo, which I guess is somewhere near Gander, um, Anyway, Nita expressed an interest in having her land tested to ensure that what she's selling is a safe product. So the newspaper, The Beacon, contacted private testing companies, government agencies, and universities to inquire if they would consider testing the local farms. Everyone they contacted said that they were not interested in getting involved at any level. And when Health Canada, which is their national health care system provider, when Health Canada was contacted, they also reported that, quote, unquote, everything is normal. Now, normal is one of those tricky words because normal is a statistical term that means being right smack dab in the center of a graph. Um, so something can be bad but still be normal because there's a lot better, but there's a lot worse as well. So what's in the middle is the statistical norm. So I don't know. Maybe what's going on there is normal. Here's another thought. Are you familiar with the word snafu? You know, oh, something's got, something's got a snafu. If you don't know the origin of that term, what it stands for, the initials stand for, it's a military term, situation normal, all effed up. And you can put in the F of your choice on that one. So if everything is normal, according to Health Canada, it may be normal, but it may be snafu'd. Now, there are other problems with uh, Cooper and Fort Calhoun in Nebraska. According to the San Francisco Chronicle yesterday, they said that there's a sand shortage. People have been putting so many sandbags up along the river that because the river rose to within 18 inches of forcing the shutdown of uh, Cooper Nuclear Plant. This was as of yesterday. Uh, stopped and ebbed slightly, but they still need more sandbags. They're running out of sand. So uh, hopefully that's being shipped in from somewhere, um, though another report that I read said that um, actually sandbags are not much use because the ground is so saturated that it's not a matter of holding back the water just by having sandbags in a row or this, this eight-foot inflated berm that's been put up around Fort Calhoun. Uh, the water can actually rise up from the ground because there's no place left for it to drain out. It's saturated, so it's just going to rise up. I don't know about you. This is stuff for concern. This is the heartland of America. If anything happens to those nuclear reactors, we're talking about a Fukushima, potentially, potentially, a Fukushima-sized event down the entire middle and heartland of the country, including an awful lot of, of farmland, uh, the waters of the Missouri, 
end up in the Mississippi, and that goes all the way down river to poor old Louisiana down there on the coast. Could that city get hammered anymore? So here's an interesting piece. What's happening is because there's no top-down leadership coming from our government, there's an awful lot of citizen activism taking place. And I want to let you know about just a little bit of this. Um, there was an interview that I got. There's a wonderful, interesting, quirky little one-email-a-day service that I've been subscribing to called Forbidden Knowledge TV. Dot com. And what it does is send out science-based videos once a day uh, on some topic of interest. I mean, I've seen a lot of very cool things about alternative energy on there, and I think alternative energy is what we must be investing in now and create a real infrastructure so that we have an alternative to nuclear. Uh, it's one of several things I think are important. But um, with Forbidden Knowledge, I find that they have sent quite a few of these videos out. Again, they only send one a day, so it's not like they're annoying you. Uh, and you can always delete whatever you're not interested in. Some of them verge just to the point of that's a little too weird for me, but the science-based ones I find are excellent. And um, they had one uh, in the past week. It was an interview by a man named Tim Rents. R-E-N-S-E, with Tim Flanagan, who is an expert in Geiger counters. I believe his site is geigercounters.com, where he talked about a nationwide network that he and others have organized to bring to light some of the domestic forms of radiation besides any kind of fallout that is, that is being um, uh, recorded. And it is a national network of citizen activists who have Geiger counters and report their findings in on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. There's even one, I'm in Southern California, and there's even one based in Santa Monica, California, that has um, a camera on it so you can see the readings live. Um, and he was talking about what this was, and some of the impact that radiation is having already. Now, there's a lot of bandying around of terms about radiation. There's, you know, Roentgens and Servits and, and, and RADs and all of the rest. But in general, in the international community, the unit of measurement that is being used is the Servette. I believe it's based on an acronym for some French phrase because, again, this is an international uh, organization that it's coming from. The, it, it doesn't matter how big it is. It's just to give you a, a sense of what we're talking about with Fukushima. The United States says that a safe level of exposure in a year is three milliservits, which is the thousandth of a three thousandths of a servant. Um, and this comes from your x-rays, your MRIs, background radiation, what you get in the sunshine, the increased radiation you get as you go up in elevation or if you're flying in an airplane. Um, so in the course of the year, the United States has currently set the level for safe exposure to radiation to a cumulative amount of three milliservits a year. Outside of Reactor 3 at Fukushima, 
This is outside, and three was the one that had the explosion where the fuel rods got shot two miles into the air and the dust nanoized. The debris outside of nuclear reactor three is leaking radiation at 1,000 millisieverts an hour. That's an hour. Safe, according to us in the U.S., is three millisieverts in a year. They're leaking at 1,000 in an hour. And just today, uh, I read a report that said that in the outskirts of Tokyo, just a few meters away from children in a playground, that radiation was detected at 6.46 microservets per hour. So, um, hmm, I thought that was millisieverts. I'm going to have to see what the difference in that is. But still, radiation is being deposited, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. Here's where I'm going to, I went over this last week, but I'm going to go over it again, that one of the benign lies that is being told or misdirection, misinformation that is out there is the sense of security that comes when people find out that the half-life of iodine-131 is only eight days. This is part of what was being put out. And yes, it's true. This was a a major release from Fukushima, and the half-life is only eight days. However, what half-life means is the period of time it takes for radiation to become half as potent and as toxic as it was when it began. It doesn't mean it's not toxic at all. It just means it's half as toxic as it was to begin with. In talking to a Southern California-based nuclear engineer a few weeks ago, I asked him about this, and he said that the way to compute how long radiation is active and toxic is to take the half-life and run it through 10 cycles. In other words, a half and a half and a half and a half going down 10 separate times. The simple way to do this is to take whatever a half-life is and multiply it by 10. So the radiation given off by iodine-131 has a half-life of eight days, but it does not become inert and and ineffective for 80 days. We're right now at day 101 since Fukushima. So anything that was released from the 31st of March on, let's say April 1st, April Fool's Day, what a good day to refer to. Anything that was released from April Fool's Day through till now is still active. And that's just iodine 131. Plutonium, which was in the fuel rods that got exploded into the upper atmosphere, plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years, which is bad enough in itself. But then you start running it through the half-life cycles, and quite frankly, 10 isn't enough with a number that big. But let's say it's only 10 cycles until it becomes inert. That's 240,000 years of radiation coming from a substance that has just been released in quantities we can't even estimate into the upper atmosphere. Uh, Now, if you want to know, I will be posting. There's a website being built for Nuclear Hot Seat, and I will be posting all of these links for you. I hope they're still live by the time I do um, so that you can get this. Um, as I said, Tim Flanagan is being interviewed by a man named Tim Rents, who has a website. I cannot recommend the Rents website simply because um, it has a lot of very wild, far out, 
uh, Illuminati kind of stuff on it. Um, this report happens to be good. It's solid. He's talking with somebody who is a scientist and who has direct knowledge and has done his own testing. Because um, radiation is showing up in water, according to his tests in Arizona. It's shown up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think next week I'll do a search and see how many different cities have actually reported that there's an increase in radiation in their water. Um, it's out there, folks, and it's not going away. Earth is a rock in the middle of a bubble, which is our atmosphere, in the middle of absolutely nowhere. What happens on Earth stays on Earth. So the radiation currently being released into the atmosphere is not going anywhere except staying in the atmosphere, landing on the planet where it gets into the food chain, into our bodies, and here's the equation nobody's talking about. Uncontrolled radiation like that. We're not talking about medically controlled radiation. We can have our debates about that, but that's not what I'm talking about here. But radiation in the environment, loose like that, equals cancer. My hero these days is a man named Arnie Gunderson, who has a site called fairwinds.com. F is in Frank, A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S.com. Now, Arnie, God love him, used to be a nuclear engineer. He ran a nuclear power plant. Then he left the field and became a private consultant, but he also became a high school teacher. Spent 15 years doing that. And um, he is the person they call to go in after a nuclear accident has happened to reconstruct exactly what happened, where the malfunctions were, what the impact on the environment is, and what can be done to correct it in the future. Uh, he has a series of videos that he's put up, and he's, I, I love the man. He's, first of all, he's very grandfatherly. Uh, he looks a bit like my grandfather did, and uh, that might have something to do with my feelings about him. But his information is solid, it's calm, it's accurate, but he doesn't pull his punches. He has already labeled Fukushima. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but what he said was approximately, it's the worst industrial accident or man-made accident ever to occur on the planet. And it's ongoing. They don't think they're going to have the core cooled down until perhaps the earliest, the middle of summer 2012. That's more than one additional year of leaking. So it, it, it's a horrible situation. Anyway, Arnie put together a video. He, he does this a couple of times a week just to keep us up to date. Um, very easy to watch, very easy to listen to, very difficult information, but if anybody makes it palatable, palatable he does. Um, where he was talking about hot particles, which means particles of radiation that were floating in the air in the dust after Fukushima and specifically after the explosion in nuclear reactor number three. What he pointed out was that people in Japan who were relatively close, like Tokyo, were probably exposed to and had the potential of inhaling as many as 20 of these particles in a day. Any one of these particles, once inhaled, it gets into the lung. The radiation burns the immediate tissue, and then the other tissue surrounding it mutates and tries to create a protective barrier. But that protective barrier consists of mutated cells. And so what you're talking about 
is what forms around that radiation is a tumor. It is cancerous, a single particle. So that was over in Japan. But he pointed out that when the plume hit the United States, people in the Northwest, think Seattle, were exposed to the potential to inhale as many as five of these particles per day. This was at the peak. So we're not immune to what's going on just because we happen to have an ocean between us. Remember, we're on a rock in the middle of a bubble in the middle of nowhere. It's here and it's not going to stay put just because Japan has national borders. Radiation is no respecter of color, creed, sex, sexuality, political, red state, blue state, none of it. It just does what it does, which is emit, uh, I guess, it, it emit radiation, and it goes through everything except maybe lead. And if we're not walking around in lead suits, we're all of us vulnerable. And there's some good news in this in this call, too. I'm going to talk to you about some holistic things you can do to help get the radiation out of your body because we can preserve our health and protect ourselves. Um, there is one other piece. Oh, yeah. Here's the one that is perhaps brought home the dangers of Fukushima more powerfully than any other way. And that is on June 3rd, video was posted on YouTube and elsewhere of a bunny that was born without ears right outside the Fukushima exclusion zone. This happened more than two and a half months, or approximately two and a half months, maybe a little more than that, after Fukushima. Now, the gestational period for a rabbit is 28 to 31 days. And these bunnies appeared to be at most four, five, maybe at the most six weeks old because it was in there with its litter mates. The others in the litter were perfectly normal. This was a white bunny, albino, and had no ears. We're talking mutation. You're talking genetic mutation. And it was interesting because one of the reports that I read online it was, that was reporting about this quoted some experts at saying, well, you know, sometimes mother rabbits get overenthusiastic in their grooming and chew the ears off their babies. Um, which just struck me as, as ludicrous, ludicrous and, and uh, truly ridiculous um, as, as a comparison. But And they were trying to go, oh, this is a one-off. Sometimes uh, mutations happen naturally. It's just, you know, it's just a one-time situation. June 19th, the video got posted online of three bunnies born without ears in China. And according to the woman who was being interviewed, this was translated from the Chinese, but according to the woman who was interviewed, the mother rabbit has in the past only given birth to whole rabbits. I mean, they had their ears, they had everything. And these were not albinos. These were colored. Some of them had, it seemed like, little kind of like stubby, you know, vestigial ears. Um, but again, it was a mutation. So realize you put that together with, again, the anecdotal information that deserves to be studied further about the spike in infant mortality in the Northwest and also in the Philadelphia area, along with the resistance of our elected officials and our health protectors and people like that to 
actually do the reports, to study the soil, to study the water, to study the, the, the grass, to find out exactly what is going on. What are the stressors to the planet that are showing up in our local community, let alone what might happen with Fort Calhoun and uh, Cooper nuclear reactors. And it's kind of curious that we're being kept in the dark. Of course, the nuclear industry spin mechanism is uh, going over time, working overtime to convince us that the man behind the curtain really isn't there and that the emperor is really wearing clothes. I happen to think he's naked and he's standing right there behind the curtain and I can see behind it. Um, I invite you to do the same. So um, on to some healing tips you can do. Holistic healing is very important in my life. That is the direction that I take with all of the healing modalities that I've been doing. Uh, I credit a lot of the changes I made to my diet and my supplementation and my health habits after Three Mile Island as being responsible for me not getting sicker than I did. As it turns out, I uh, had my adrenals exhausted by the stress of it, and that was not diagnosed for more than 30 years afterwards. Um, it has been diagnosed in the last year and a half. I'm feeling much better, which is why I have the energy to do a call like this. Um, but here are some things you need to do. First of all, you need to be taking iodine, preferably in a benign form, not a pharmaceutical form, um, for your thyroid. Because if your thyroid is filled with, with good iodine, it's not going to pick up the radioactive iodine should you be exposed to it. Also, iodine is good for your body. You need a certain amount of it in there and, and, and circulating for your thyroid health. You'll probably find that your energy picks up quite a bit once you've got enough of this going on. So there are many places online where you can get um, iodine drops of various sorts. It's usually couched as some kind of a, um, a sea vegetable-derived uh, product. And I would strongly suggest that if you're interested in protecting your health that you look to those. Uh, you can also do this in a very low-tech way, otherwise known as food. Um, it was shown after uh, Hiroshima that the people who were uh, in a local hospital, the doctor there mandated that all staff eat really a macrobiotic diet. And they had a lot of miso, a lot of seaweed. They only ate grains and some very basic vegetables. Um, out of that, something really easy for you to do, make yourself a bowl of miso soup. Uh, it's very easy. Don't use the powdered stuff. That doesn't have the kind of enzymes in it that are going to be best for you. But miso soup made with miso that comes out of a tub and it's kind of like a really thick paste. Um, I use either a red miso or a brown miso. Those are just the tastes that I prefer. And you take about a tablespoon of that. And then you add in hot water, not boiling water. And you never want to boil this as a soup because it kills off the enzymes. So put the water in with the, uh, with the miso paste, stir it up, get it to whatever flavor intensity you want. Uh, it is quite salty, so you might want to make it more dilute. And then take a sheet of nori, which is the seaweed that you see wrapped around sushi, you know, the flat green stuff that looks like paper. Take that. I toast it for about 30 seconds in a, um, uh, a toaster oven, which kind of crisps it up. You don't have to, but it just gives it a little bit better consistency for crumbling. And I crumble that into the bowl, and then I eat 
the whole thing, and one of those a day, and I'm getting enzymes, which are helping my digestion, which are helping cleanse my body, and I'm also getting the seaweed, which has a high level of um, iodine in it, and that's helping to protect me. One other thing that I am doing is taking French green clay or bentonite every day. Taking half a teaspoon, this is, this is a natural clay, you need to get an absolutely undiluted version of this. And again, you can check online, there are lots of places that sell it, you can go to Amazon, they've got many brands available, uh, or other places. I don't want to you know, give a nod to one product or one supplier, just do your own research on this. But take what I do is I have a, a, a sipper bottle that's 32 ounces, and I fill it up with uh, purified water, I don't have one of those reverse ozo, reverse osmosis systems on mine. Um, I just that's not been something I could afford yet. But um, I use a carbon block filter, and I so I take about 30 ounces of that, and I mix in half a teaspoon of the clay, and then I put some flavoring agents in just because that's what I need to do. And to make it very alkaline, which is good for the body, uh, what I do is I add in organic apple cider vinegar and some stevia, which is a, a, a natural sweetener that has no calories in it and won't spike your blood sugar. And uh, then I add a little bit of bicarbonate of soda, again, about half a teaspoon. What that does, besides giving it a little bit of fizz, is it helps make the liquid even more alkaline. The apple cider vinegar does that, too. So the combination of alkaline and 32 ounces of liquid with that little bit of uh, clay in there, what it does is the clay pulls heavy metals out of your body as you digest it. You want to make sure that you drink a lot of water with this because it's clay. What can I say? You don't want yourself to, you know, suddenly get jammed up. Um, but to drink a lot of water with it, and uh, I don't do that every day, but I'll do that maybe, you know, two or three times a week. And um, I find that my energy is good. I feel good. I cannot tell you physiologically exactly what it's doing because um, I don't have any reports or any studies being done on my body right now. So this, again, is anecdotal information. But, you know, in lieu of getting any kind of facts or anything more than shallow assurances from those who are in power, I'll take anecdotes over nothing. Uh, in terms of hygiene, anytime you go outside, when you come in, first thing to do, wash your hands. Another good thing, if you can, leave your shoes outside, just in case there's anything in the dust that you may have tracked in. It's a good practice anyway. Um, I know a lot of people who aren't concerned about radiation, but who've been keeping their shoes off inside for years and uh, leaving the shoes outdoors. If it rains, do your best not to be in the rain. And if you can, take off your rain gear and leave it outside and don't bring it into the house because I spoke about this last week too, but I'll go back to it. When plant number three in Fukushima exploded, it shot radioactive debris, meaning fueling rods, which have plutonium in them, two miles up into the atmosphere where they nanoized into dust and started that drift on the, you know, the currents that show up on Doppler radiation. Rain and snow have to precipitate around a particle of something. 
They don't just form by themselves. There has to be something that they coalesce around until they're heavy enough to fall to earth. So rain was formed around the dust from Fukushima and came down. Going back to the story about Philly and the infant mortality rate, that's probably the reason why they spiked there. They had so much rain. The same with the snow that came down. I have a concern that nobody's measuring the radiation in the snowpack up in the Sierras because the last of the snow came down after Fukushima, and it's still up there. I'm just back from a trip to uh, the Rockies, and um, there was plenty of snow still up there. I don't know what the radiation level was. Um, we deserve to know that. But in any event, what that speaks to is if it's raining, stay indoors as best you can. Take off your raincoat. Uh, if you've got a mudroom grate, if you've got a porch, leave it out there. Uh, if not, leave it just inside the door. Um, you don't, and if you can, and you have, I mean, if you can't leave it outside and you must bring it inside, put it in a great big plastic bag and um, vent it so that it dries out. But do your best not to leave it just laying around. Uh, wash your hands a lot, and um, wow, be safe out there. There's an awful lot that we can be doing, that we need to be doing, that we should be doing. So what you have been listening to is Nuclear Hot Seat. This is my second one. My name is Libby Halevi. I don't think, hope they don't come after me just because I'm using my real name on this. Um, and I will be doing these podcasts every week. There's a, a website being constructed. It's not up yet, but it will be under nuclearhotseat.com where I will be posting all of the podcasts, all of the information so that you can have it. And I just remembered, there are two books I would like to suggest that you get and read for two entirely different reasons. One of them, uh, this is health-based, and this is the book that helped me turn around um, the difficulties that I had uh, with my adrenal glands as a result of having been at Three Mile Island and everything I went through after that. The book is called Adrenal Fatigue. The subtitle is The 21st Century Stress Syndrome. It's by a man named Wilson. And it's a wonderful explanation of exactly how adrenal fatigue, adrenal exhaustion take place and what you can do about it. There's a quiz inside of it that um, I suggest you just turn to and you take immediately. It's many pages long. It's very elaborate. It reads out in many different ways. But that was how I was able to self-diagnose before going to a holistic pr practitioner who then confirmed the diagnosis for me that, yes, I did have moderate to severe adrenal fatigue. With Adrenal fatigue comes from stress. And given the information out of Japan, the physical stressors on our body, in addition to whatever we're going through in our personal lives, we all need to be taking care of our adrenals because they're a master gland in the body. They're actually above the thyroid. If you've got a thyroid problem, you've got an adrenal problem too. And by taking care of the adrenal, you might be able to clear up your thyroid. In any event, that's one of the two books I want to recommend because it's a way for you to be more informed in taking care of your health. Here's the other one. There was a man back in the early part of the 19th century, and actually he lived until until the uh, 2000s. He was very long lived, 101 years. A man named Edward Bernays, B as in boy, E R N A Y S. He is considered by many to be the father of modern public relations. 
he was the first one who really systematically and scientifically figured it out figured out how to manipulate people into having a belief that they think they came up with by themselves. I've been reading a book of his, a very slender book, which was originally published in 1928. The book is called Propaganda. And what it is, is his equation of public relations with propaganda. He's trying to use it as a positive term, not a negative term, which was a losing battle. But it reads like a playbook for how manipulation of the masses happens. And because this was written so long ago, he was totally unselfconscious about some of the larger or more sinister implications of what he was talking about. So if you're interested in having a clue as to how the manipulation is going on, how it's being formed, and then perhaps we can use some of this for um, empowering an anti-nuclear stance because it's these kind of manipulations that are empowering a pro-nuclear stance, even in the face of Fukushima. Uh, if you would like that information, um, I strongly urge you to read the book Propaganda by Edward Bernays, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. I got mine out of the library. You might be able to get it there. If not, it can't be that expensive on uh, on Amazon. So again, now I'm really going to close the call. Uh, I thank you all for listening. Please, uh, when you get this download, feel free to pass it on to your friends. This call is going to take place every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, and it will be made available on the website as soon as that is up. Hopefully within a week or two it will be there so we can really start powering this up. My goal is to give you the information you need to understand what is going on in the world, some resources. Once I have the website, I will be posting links to all of these stories that I have found. Ultimately, this is going to be a, a membership site with a very, very low monthly ding just so that I've got some resources to be able to empower this process uh, and and hire some people to help me and get some research done and um, have the equipment and the tools I need to get this out in a bigger way. I know how much suffering I needlessly went through in the wake of Three Mile Island simply by not knowing what I needed to know to take care of myself, take the proper precautions, and, and find my way back to the health that I deserved and spent more than 30 years not having the energy, not having the energy to live the life I wanted to live and not knowing what the source was. It may not have been radiation, but it was the stress in the wake of it. I don't want anybody else to have to suffer like this, and I don't want the world to have to have nuclear reactors out there to provide power. There are alternatives. There are ways around. I'll be discussing that in future uh, podcasts. In the meantime, if you can take one action this week, I would say pick a legislator, any legislator, any level. National would be great. Go to your senators. Go to your representatives. If not, go to your local government. Try and get your town declared a nuclear-free zone if you possibly can. But appeal to them if you are against nuclear reactors and nuclear energy. You must make your voice known. No one of us can do this alone. But together, taking concerted effort one-on-one-on-one-on-one, we can make a difference, and we will make a difference, and we must make a difference. After all, it's only our planets and the future of our species that we're talking about. Anyway, this is the 21st of June, 2011. 
It is the solstice. I wish you a happy solstice, a good life, health and healing, and I look forward to having you on the call next week. The Behal Lady from Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.